0: Hello and welcome to the Big Ideas into Action podcast from the World Resources Institute. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this podcast, the issue we're looking at is transformative adaptation in agriculture. How farmers around the world are having to change what they do in response to climate change.
1: We're already seeing climate impacts that are quite severe and we're already seeing farmers that are transitioning because of it to new new livelihoods, new production systems.
0: We hear from a Costa Rican farmer who's had to rethink what he grows on his land. And we hear about the challenges stopping other farmers from finding their own ways to adapt. It's the poorest farmers who are most
2: vulnerable, who have the fewest options and are likely to
0: need a lot more support to make these really significant changes. So if you were a farmer and the climate changed, what would you do about it? At first, you might simply try small experiments to adapt. After all, farmers are used to annual variations in the weather. But what about if the changes aren't just annual variations, but are serious shifts in weather patterns associated with climate change? Drier weather, higher temperatures, more frequent storms or prolonged periods of rainfall. These issues are the subject of a new WRI paper called Food Systems at Risk, Transformative Adaptation for Long-Term Food Security. Two of the authors were Rebecca Carter and first Tyler Ferdinand.
1: So when we're talking about transformative adaptation, we're talking about shifts in agricultural production systems in regions of the world where climate impacts are going to intensify to the point where whatever they're producing or whatever their livelihoods are, are non-viable. We're talking about the types of shifts that are needed in order for agricultural communities or agricultural systems to be sustainable and equitable in the long term.
2: When we first started doing this research, you know, we, we tried to unpack what is meant by this term, transformative adaptation, and we found a whole lot of different definitions of it, um, ranging from sort of our definition, which is based on the IPCC's definition, you know, that Incremental change, which is the opposite, I guess, of transformative adaptation, is where adaptation is seeking to preserve the existing system, whereas transformative adaptation recognizes that the system itself is going to have to change. But we also find that transformation is a buzzword, and it's everywhere And it's often just better used to mean sort of bigger, better adaptation. It can be used sort of aspirationally to mean like when we finally get development or adaptation right. Um, And so, you know, I think encouraging more cohesion around what this term means would be pretty helpful as well.
0: Uh, Rebecca, what kind of areas are affected by this?
2: So the areas that we see affected today are areas that are already kind of marginal for agriculture or where it's, it's just getting more precarious. Um, and they might include desert areas, for example, where water supplies are already limited. They could include ecosystems that depend on glacier water for irrigation, and you know the glaciers are, are melting, and that, that source of water is in jeopardy. Um, small island states where sea level rise is becoming a larger and larger problem, and coastal areas for the same reason.
0: So what is the research telling you, that this is obviously becoming more frequent?
2: It is, actually. What we're seeing now are some agricultural production systems that are already sort of on the edge. And we expect, based on the projections that scientists are are showing us about how climate change is going to continue and intensify more and more places to become like this, where what is happening now is going to have to change in some pretty significant ways.
0: Tyler, can you give me an example of, of the type of way in which it affects particular farmers?
1: We've worked in a variety of different communities, but one of the the community that we've worked in the most has been in Costa Rica. Uh, And this is a coffee farming region in which they're now struggling to produce coffee because of increase in temperature, but also increased variability of precipitation. And because of that, in this region called Guanacaste, they're now starting to transition to citrus
0: farming. Well, let's listen to one of the farmers that Tyler's just mentioned who've been forced to find an alternative to coffee farming. We caught up with Carlos Vasquez, the associate manager of a cooperative on a rather scratchy phone line from Costa Rica. My name is Carlos Vasquez, like his father, grew coffee all his life and loved it. But then, thanks to climate change, the situation became more difficult. In
2: 1996,
0: he remembers, the climate became drier and warmer, and it became a struggle to adapt their coffee growing. To add to the problems, coffee prices were low. Carlos Vázquez and his fellow farmers were struggling to earn money and adapt to the changes they saw. He says there wasn't a single solution to the challenges. They brought in younger farmers with clever new ideas. They diversified, which in some cases meant switching away from coffee to citrus because it's stronger and more resilient in the face of the changing climate. Back now to
1: Tyler. And what we're finding is that those farmers that are making these shifts are actually doing much better economically because of the fact that they have reliable income.
0: This in its essence is something that all agriculturalists have done through history adapt to changes in in the circumstances under which they're farming but but what's happening here is because of climate change this is becoming an even more acute need that's correct
2: Yeah, that is the case, and you know, I will say that it is true that farmers have adapted to climate variability throughout history, but what we're seeing now are changes beyond what a lot of farming communities have experience with, you know, even going back to their grandparents, they may not have seen conditions like they are seeing now. And they may not be seeing them as consistently or, you know, going from a very severe drought to an epic flood and then back to drought and then flood again. You know, these kinds of things. There are also new pests and diseases that are cropping up that a lot of farming communities are are not familiar with. And that's that's another challenge for them. And I also want to note that the farmers that have been most successful in adapting throughout history and especially now are often the ones who have the best access to Finance, you know, to enough land to experiment with new types of crops. They have better access to information. And so there's an important equity dimension into this where the farmers who are already better off are likely to be the ones who are able to handle these kinds of changes without additional support. But it's the poorest farmers who are most vulnerable who have the fewest options and are likely to need a lot more support to make these really significant changes that we're talking about with transformative adaptation
0: how much of this help is coming from outside? How much expertise and new technology is coming from outside? And how much is it actually something that the farmers themselves are able to, to kind of understand the situation and work out ways to adapt themselves?
2: So I think it's it's both. And I think the difference is when we're talking about like short-term solutions, there are a lot of examples all around the world of ways that farming communities deal with with climate variability, you know, within a certain range. But when we're talking about the speed and the scale at which we expect climate change impacts to happen, that's when additional support is needed. So the basis has to be with farming communities, you know, whatever other solutions or whatever other support comes in to help in these more severe conditions that we see going forward, the solutions need to incorporate what farmers are already doing, and they need to engage them in the process of change. It shouldn't be just something that is imposed from top down, but at the same time, the three key audiences that we think have the most power to make changes here are researchers who need to be thinking more about how to help farmers make these longer-term shifts, policymakers who need to begin incorporating longer-term change and transformative adaptation into their adaptation and national development policies, and then adaptation funding entities who have been providing funds in ways that are certainly helpful, and the amounts are increasing. But what we find when we look closely at them is that a lot of the funding is for short-term solutions, and it doesn't really provide kind of the stable and secure funding over a long time to make these really significant changes that, that we're thinking about with transformative adaptation.
0: Uh, it strikes me that one of the most significant things that farmers might have to do to adapt is even to to change where they're farming. Is, is that a factor? Because if so, that, that that's quite a, a major barrier to being able to transform the way in which you're farming. Tyler?
1: Yeah, that's, that's completely right. And we, we're already seeing this actually happen. Um, I would say more so actually in, in higher income countries such as Australia that are able to migrate their vineyards to new areas that are much cooler or have more reliable rainfall. But we're also seeing this migration of crops or this migration of cropping systems in areas like the north of India and the the foothills of the Himalayas in which, uh, for example, apple production is popular. But because of the type of chilling that is required to make that suitable, it's getting too hot. And so luckily there's kind of a, a cultural way of land tenure. In which there's vertical plots of land that go from lower to higher altitudes, and what we're seeing is is that most of that apple production is moving higher and higher to follow that colder temperature.
2: I don't think it's it's feasible to think about migrating entire farming communities or, or even individual farmers, particularly those who are less well off. You know, they're not going to have the funding to to buy land further up slope. Our research focuses more on helping these farmers to access new types of crops that they can grow on their same land, new types of crops that are better suited for the way the climate is changing.
1: I would completely agree with Rebecca. what Rebecca said. The example that I gave is very unique. And in most circumstances, smallholder farmers, smallholder producers aren't able to actually get up and move because that's very costly. That tends to be more of these larger agribusinesses. We're not necessarily saying that that's the right approach. Instead, as Rebecca said, it's more of growing different things that are suitable in the longer term where they already are located.
2: Absolutely. And this is what we mean by systemic change. It's, it's not enough to just, you know, show up and give a farmer new seeds, for example. I mean, they need the markets to be in place. They need to have the labor at the right times of the year. You know, they need the, the distribution to those markets. Um, in some cases, new crops are going to require new types of processing or new types of packaging, that all require infrastructure investments. Farmers will need access to knowledge about how to grow new crops. That's another part of the system that has to change, and also different types of inputs. You know, the the types of, for example, fertilizers that you might use for one crop, or the types of pesticides, which of course we hope both would be organic. But you know, they they would not be the same um, between crops, and so farmers need to have access to those kinds of inputs as well.
1: Just to return to the, the Costa Rica example with coffee to citrus, we are seeing that exactly that, that they need a whole different uh, market because the domestic market for oranges or citrus is quite saturated. So they need access to an export market and also they need different types of agro processing. And so what we've seen is actually different cooperatives, coffee cooperatives that are now transitioning into including citrus, are starting to come together to jointly fund, for example, a citrus processing plant. And that takes a lot of energy, a lot of investment, a lot of time, a lot of planning. Therefore, there needs to be some type of support. To go back to one of your earlier questions uh, about where we are seeing this and the support they're receiving, unfortunately, a lot of this is autonomous, meaning they're not receiving support in in terms of from policymakers or investors. It tends to just happen in situ, in, in the, the farms themselves. We need more uh, support from policymakers and uh, investors as well as researchers to help with these types of transitions, especially with markets.
0: When you're looking at this kind of systemic change that's needed to make all of this uh, all of these transformations actually work, what happens if any of the links are, are missing or misconstrued or, or, or they just plain get wrong?
1: Well, I would bring up the example of the transition from rice paddy to uh, aquaculture, shrimp aquaculture in Bangladesh. And we've seen that in these regions that are facing more and more coastal inundation, more flooding, that they're needing to transition out of rice paddy, although there's some salt tolerant varieties, to uh, shrimp aquaculture. And that's kind of been happening for a while now. But what some researchers have pointed out is that Because of the dynamics in resources, so some farmers already have capital assets, uh, different types of infrastructure, there's a consolidation of power and wealth. So those that are typically the more vulnerable and under resourced either move out or move on. And so the missing link there is actually some type of policy infrastructure, some type of credit system, or something along the lines of some type of financial mechanism that's inclusive enough so that. Farmers that were working in rice paddy can still transition to aquaculture, just like those that already had resources.
2: People often say that farmers are very conservative and they don't want to try new things. I don't think that's actually true. I think in a lot of cases, if they know that there is a robust market for new types of of crops that they might grow, if they know that, you know, they will have support for having the inputs that they need, that they have the agro-processing or the storage so that those crops don't spoil... I think they're much more willing to make these kinds of changes if the whole system is in place.
0: And what happens if the new choice, the transformation, is wrong? Uh, Say, for instance, in Costa Rica, say there was a community going from uh, coffee growing to uh, citrus. What would happen if that then turned out to be unviable?
1: So in the circumstance of Costa Rica, there's still a lot of intercropping. So coffee isn't completely... They're, they're not, it's not a wholesale switch. They're they're slowly transitioning to citrus. I think that the key is, is that in these types of transitions, you, you remain flexible. In terms of farmers, that means sometimes that you need to diversify what you are growing. We're not encouraging potential, for example, monocultures to a new um, type of citrus, which might be infected by a, a new uh, virus or disease, in which case everything would be wiped out. The important part is that when you're when you are transitioning, when you are having these types of shifts, that it has this longer thinking perspective that remains flexible. The climate is gonna to continue to change and so farmers are gonna to have to continue to change.
2: Just to build on that a little bit, um, you know, I, I with Costa Rica, I don't think oranges are going to be the solution for all farmers everywhere, Um, you know, because as Tyler mentioned, there are new diseases that are cropping up, for example, um, in that particular production system. But I think the overall message is more that farmers need to be able to shift faster. You know, they need to have the kinds of support in place where if the climate keeps changing or if unexpected things like new diseases keep popping up, they're able to just be more adaptable, be more flexible, you know, and have the support they need to know what their range of possibilities are, know that markets will be there for them, um, know that agricultural extension is changing fast enough that, you know, they, they can get the information they need and not just what maybe these extension agents learned quite some time ago when they were in school.
0: Is all of this actually happening at the scale that is necessary to, to help the farmers in this kind of situation? You're talking about all of the different things that, that need to come together to make this work. It's, it seems like a really, really, really hard problem to solve in the number of instances that we've got around the world.
2: I would say that it's happening at nowhere near the speed and scale and scope that it needs to happen. Um, And there have been other researchers who have looked very hard for cases of transformative adaptation by using different criteria and only found a handful. So this is something that communities can do, but not all communities can do and not very quickly. In places that fail to transform when the environment that surrounds them, including the climate, changes such as what they're doing is not going to work, you know, those those systems fail. And then we have issues like more migration. We have conflict over resources. Um, so this is why, you know, we, we wrote this report basically to urge these groups of people who we think can take effective action, you know, the researchers, the policymakers, and the funders to focus more on this issue, to focus more on longer term adaptation, um, transformative adaptation, making these bigger systemic changes because they won't happen fast enough on their own.
1: We're already seeing climate impacts that are quite severe and we're already seeing farmers that are transitioning because of it to new new livelihoods, new production systems. But we know that beyond 2030, crop, livestock, fisheries are gonna become less viable in certain regions, unless if there is adaptation action like we're talking about. For major crops, there, there's been an estimate that there will be a 5 to 7% decrease in yields, such for rice, maize, and wheat, per degree Celsius. And once you add those up over and over again, 5, 5, 5 for each degree, that gets to a point where that crop is no longer economically viable. There was a recent study actually looking at these types of agroecological shifts, so the types of agricultural systems and their suitability according to the local ecology and climate. And there was 157 countries, they predicted that 34% would face catastrophic food insecurity by 2050, unless if there was substantial adaptation action.
0: So from your research, what kind of recommendations are you coming up with that can actually help transformational adaptation happen more effectively?
1: So one of the key audience members that we're looking at to transmit this information about transformative adaptation is for researchers. Specifically, agricultural researchers, although we encourage uh, intersectoral collaboration. What we're suggesting is that there needs to be a focus on the needs of the most vulnerable users where shifts are needed, so in these climate hotspots, and that we need to expand research agendas for national agricultural research organizations to start include transformative adaptation, because by and large, we're seeing that a lot of the approaches that these research agendas are focusing on. Are the incremental adaptation approaches that are trying to maintain systems that might not be sustainable in the long term?
2: Um, national and sub-national governments have a lot of a lot that they can do to better integrate an understanding of when, where, and how food systems are going to need to shift in the coming decades. And they, they need to incorporate this into their planning processes and use inclusive participatory processes to design pathways to the future so that smallholder farmers, fishers, and rural communities are, are not left behind. This really needs to be sort of an all-hands-on-deck effort that national governments and subnational ones are going to play an important role on. Another point that I would stress is the need for better coordination between these different groups, You know, between governments, adaptation funders, and research organizations. To create these, this transformative change in a way that's coherent, inclusive, and participatory. And also that is based on an understanding of existing political economies, as well as existing cultural preferences, you know, and, and community preferences as much as possible, rather than just having this be a, a top-down kind of thing.
0: Uh, but there are also opportunities to be seized with, uh, with transformative adaptation, correct?
2: There are. There are. And especially if governments and the private sector can really refocus incentives and disincentives to initiate and sustain these kinds of adaptive shifts in food systems. Um, For example, policies have a lot to do with what kinds of crops are grown where, you know, and oftentimes it is the crop where there's a tax break or the crop where, you know, there's some other financial incentive. And there is a lot that, that can be done to foster opportunities Um, And to encourage the shifts to go in the right direction. And just as an example, you know, going back to coffee, which we use as an example, because everybody understands at some level the importance of coffee. We've talked about places where it's not going to be possible to continue producing coffee unless the breeding of new heat tolerant and also disease resistant varieties really steps up. But even so, there are places where it's probably not going to be possible. But those places will become more suitable for different types of crops, And there will be places that are currently too cold for coffee that will become more viable for it. So for those kinds of places to be able to understand these opportunities in advance and make the investments that will be required to take advantage of them, I think is another big need.
1: I I just wanted to echo what Rebecca said. And and even when there's a potential loss in terms of, let's say, with coffee, with climate change, there is always an opportunity. So for example, we did an economic analysis in Ethiopia of if they were to switch to vanilla in the regions that were going to no longer be viable for coffee, how much would they actually gain? And the figure is substantial. There's about a $250 million loss by 2050 if they don't adapt, and almost over a billion dollars worth of gains if they were to switch to vanilla. This is just theoretical, but it goes to show that there are potential wins for these types of shifts. You're not shifting just because you have to, but because there is an greater opportunity in the future.
0: And that was Tyler Ferdinand and Rebecca Carter, two of the authors of a new WRI report, Food Systems at Risk, Transformative Adaptation for Long-Term Food Security. You can find the report on our website, wri.org, along with plenty more on adaptation to the increasing risks of climate change. You'll also find more podcasts at wri.org slash podcasts on everything from food waste to the challenges of energy access. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.